Hello, and welcome back to the Hypermobility Happy Hour, the first podcast exclusively dedicated to discussing hypermobility conditions, including hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. On today's episode, we have a very special guest, Donna Irene. She is a travel photographer with hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome from Miami, Florida, and soon to be in Chattanooga, Tennessee. She picked up a camera at the age of 13, and since then, her camera has taken her to five continents and 40 countries. Since her diagnosis in 2022, she has become an advocate for women in visible disabilities and shares about her journey on social media. Donna, hello, and welcome to the Hypermobility Happy Hour. Hi, Carrie. I am super excited to talk with you. Thanks for having me. Me too. So excited um, that we could finally connect on this. We've been uh, talking about talking for some time. Um, (laughs) It's quite a while. So great that the stars are, uh, knock on wood, aligning. Um, And uh, yeah, I guess, would you like to um, start out? A lot of times we kind of start out with going in through an overview of how you first learned about hypermobility and how having Ehlers-Danlos has affected you in your life. Sure. Um, I first became symptomatic actually when I was eight years old. I had a traumatic horseback riding accident where I was thrown from the horse jumping. I rode horses growing up for still about 10 years after that, but pretty much from that day forward, my life was never the same. I didn't have any sort of chronic pain previous to that accident, at least that I was aware of, but pretty much immediately after my fall, I had very severe low back pain to the point that growing up in school, I was very limited with activities like PE, walking upstairs, carrying a backpack. And it was very debilitating and confusing as an eight-year-old because I didn't know what exactly was causing it. After my accident, I got all these scans, CT scans, MRIs, and it all came back normal. So my doctors pretty much said, don't worry about it. Just do some stretches, go see a chiropractor, but there's nothing wrong with your spine. So I pretty much spent my life growing up in and out of every type of practitioner for back pain from chiropractors to physical therapists, massage therapists, acupuncture, you name it, going multiple times a week all through middle school, high school, and never finding any relief. And I am now 30, and it actually wasn't until I was 29 years old that I first heard about Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome, which is kind of crazy considering how much research I've done my entire life. But it was actually a physical therapist I had at the time who was the first person to say, hey, I think there is a big connection here and you might have this condition. So I went down the rabbit hole, ended up learning about the diagnostic process and was lucky enough to find a geneticist in West Palm Beach named Dr. Atwal, who was the one to a few months later formally diagnose me with HEDS. Thank you so much for sharing that experience and There's so much in there that I think is so common and that I've heard time and time again. And I'm so sorry to hear that you had to go on such a long process um, for your diagnosis. I'm I'm thinking about how it's often described as the diagnostic odyssey. And that just always is kind of confusing to me because, you know, having read the odyssey in college, like that's kind of this adventure journal, whereas I think the experience of many in getting diagnosed with EDS is more like being trapped in a Kafka-esque nightmare where you can't really figure out what's going on. And it's it doesn't have the sense of adventure or like proactive discovery. It's kind of grasping in the dark. It's interesting, too, that you point out that you had been doing all this research and still not coming across Ehlers-Danlos. And that's something that I experienced and that I've heard time and time again from people in the community And it's kind of odd how hidden Ehlers-Danlos seems to be in search results, that if you're searching for chronic joint pain, um, you know, these symptoms that you're mentioning, 
that Ehlers-Danlos does not come up. And I've heard this time and time again from, you know, very smart, curious people who diligently were trying to figure out an explanation to their symptoms and just not coming across Ehlers-Danlos. And it's very strange. It, It does give me some hope to see that there's, you know, more conversation going on about this online, like, like the advocacy that you're doing. And we'll get into that a bit more in a moment. But um, just to touch on one last thing that you mentioned there, talking about becoming injured at age eight, you know, and experiencing all of this, it it brings to mind how recently um, many in the community are probably aware there were revisions published to the diagnostic guidelines for Ehlers-Danlos for children. And they conclude in there that HEDS is reserved for biologically mature adolescents who meet the 2017 criteria. And I was very surprised to see this because we've heard of many children being diagnosed, not many, and proportionately, it's still a small proportion. Most, you know, with EDS are diagnosed in adulthood. But this article says that they propose that children should not be assessed with the 2017 criteria or diagnosed with HEDS until they have reached biological maturity. And I'm not understanding the scientific basis for for making this recommendation, especially because it seems like the people who I've talked to who were diagnosed and, you know, met met the criteria and were diagnosed at an early age were able to kind of take control of their lives, you know, understand their limitations, understand their abilities. And as one previous guest on this podcast once said, that having the explanation of EDS has been helpful psychologically to be able to have some quote something to blame it on, you know, to be able to blame these symptoms on this condition and not have to internalize that. And people have talked about, for example, uh, Billy Eilish talked about feeling like she was gaslighting herself in this process before being yes. diagnosed with hypermobility. And so. I don't have all the answers. Frankly, I don't think anyone does. But it seems to me that having people be diagnosed accurately from an early as an age as they're having symptoms and meeting the criteria, which there are issues with the criteria as well, issues with Biden. um, And there's been some great research that's come out on that. But I just fundamentally do not understand this recent decision to, you know, not have children be assessed for Ehlers-Danlos until after age 18, because this is a genetic condition. And so, you know, genetic conditions don't magically fall out of the air at age 18. And the general public is struggling to understand EDS as it is. And I'm concerned that this will make it even harder to understand because people know that genetic conditions don't just appear out of thin air at age 18. And uh, I think it would be one thing you know, if there was a good support and education structure around what's being called HSD, I do think it's problematic that it's called hypermobility spectrum disorder, because I think calling anyone inherently genetically disordered is very stigmatizing in itself. Absolutely. Um, But the stated purpose in this article, um, they say that part of the reason for this this new recommendation is that an accurate PG, pediatric generalized HSD diagnosis, provides the foundation for appropriate current treatment and support, but not a lifelong diagnosis, which may result in over-medicalization and potential harms. And that just confused me so much because to me, what I hear time and time again, having spoken to dozens, if not hundreds of hypermobile people at this point, that most people are having trouble getting appropriate treatment and appropriate medical care, not that they're being over-medicalized. So I'm just, my head's just kind of spinning, but. I could say a million things on this topic. Uh, First and foremost, I, having had these issues since I was eight years old, am so passionate about early diagnosis and how important that is in protecting people with this condition because I did many things throughout my childhood and early adulthood that were damaging, such as very frequent chiropractic with high velocity adjustments. Now knowing that I have also been diagnosed with CCI and AAI, I can't even imagine what that has done to 
my neck and my instability over the years. And although I have to throw out a disclaimer that I'm not a medical professional, I am not a geneticist. However, from what I understand about genetics, it's often triggered by some sort of traumatic event, whether that be a physical trauma, an emotional trauma, a virus. There is a lot of research about the connection with Epstein-Barr virus and the onset of EDS. For me, I clearly had this physical trauma that was the trigger. And trauma is so prevalent in our society today that it's very common to see children experience trauma at an early age. So to say that a person with EDS shouldn't be able to get a diagnosis until they're an adult is really harmful. I wish I could go back in time and have gotten those answers as a kid. I am thankful that I have these answers now, but I could have done my body so much good having the right tools early on because when you especially have hypermobile EDS, you are someone who is probably drawn to sports like gymnastics or yoga, all the bendy sports. I, you know, did horseback riding growing up, which was probably horrible for my issues. And I had no way of knowing of what I should or shouldn't do or how to protect my body. Um, Along with that, I also have POTS and spent my entire life experiencing heat intolerance, exercise intolerance, and just pushing myself because I was always under the impression that maybe I just wasn't physically fit enough or, you know, I was lazier. And it's crazy to, to know now the anatomy of why I struggle with the heat and with exerting myself and the emotional trauma I could have spared myself knowing, hey, my body is just built different and my brain is wired differently would have made such a difference. Absolutely. I completely agree. And I'm thinking of the few instances on this podcast where we've interviewed people who were diagnosed as children. And I can say in my experience, having talked to so many hypermobile people and people with Ehlers-Danlos over the years, the people who are doing the seem to be doing the best, you know, physically sort of having their symptoms most under control are those people who were diagnosed young. And I, I you know, it, it just, it seems kind of self-evident, you know, having this underlying, like you said, being constructed differently, it puts us at higher risk of injury from certain things. Like, like you said, I think a lot of us are attracted to those interesting sports like horse riding, skiing, you know, lots of things that can be harder on joints. And, and people, I think, have a right to know, you know, if their body is constructed differently, and if they're at higher risk or higher risk for a surgical procedure, you know, higher risk of bleeding, all these different things, because it gives them a chance to be empowered and to make decisions that are right for them. And you mentioned a few things there that I think are worth highlighting. You know, you talked about the role of trauma and and I completely agree. I think that's it's a huge influence on human health. You know, I find it somewhat perplexing that so much of the discussion about trauma focuses on how people are harmed by being traumatized, but there's very little discussion in our culture about people who are causing harm. Mm-hmm. And and of course the saying hurt people hurt people comes to mind. And so, you know, a lot of people who are in a position to be traumatizing others one way or another, in all likelihood, probably themselves have experienced trauma and are passing on what they know. So it's complicated. But we hear very little about things like narcissistic personality disorder and other conditions that cause trauma. And a lot of the emphasis is is on how it impacts people who are traumatized and experience this. And it it just seems like we kind of need to have a larger social reckoning with the seriousness of it and how do we help people heal 
both from trauma, but heal so that they're not continuing to cause trauma in the first place. And you also mentioned Epstein-Barr. I've heard that time and time again. In the, the many people that I've spoken to, the vast majority have had some kind of traumatic injury or illness or traumatic event of another sort that has sort of set off this downward spiral, so to speak, into a more symptomatic phase, a a less physically functional phase. To me, that suggests that I I think this population seems to be at higher risk from injury, from illnesses, from trauma of various sorts. And so again, that knowledge is power component that if we're aware that we're at higher risk, we can take steps to proactively Maybe it's avoid certain activities or do them within our limits with working with someone who has experience to figure out what those limits are and helping us to find supportive social structures so that if or when we're experiencing trauma, we have a way to process that instead of just the push through mentality that we're, most of us um, are raised with. Absolutely. I have quite a... Uh, history of various forms of trauma. And I think it's really important to talk about because as I've been kind of tracking my symptoms and what leads to pain for me and flare-ups and just generally feeling unwell, it's often the emotional piece that makes me feel the worst. And my trauma in my life started even before my horseback riding accident, because I was raised by two disabled parents. My dad is blind. He has a hereditary eye disease called RP. And my mother was mentally ill. She had schizophrenia. So from birth in utero, I have been exposed to trauma. And on top of that, I have always been a highly sensitive empathetic type of person. And it was just a few months after my diagnosis with HEDS that thanks to TikTok and social media, I started to uncover the next set of puzzle pieces, which was neurodivergence. And that was another huge awakening for me where I went my entire life feeling like something was different. There was a clear reason here, but no one could seem to tell me why. And just a couple months ago, I ended up getting also formally diagnosed with autism, ADHD, and complex PTSD. And I almost feel like that diagnosis has been even more helpful than the HEDS one because I have started to put the pieces together of how much emotional dysregulation and my heightened sensitivity to sensory input and other people's energy and uh, negative energy affects my chronic pain and how I feel. And having those tools is absolutely life-changing. And you know, Carrie, that right now I'm currently working with Kaylin Johnson, who was just one of your guests, who is absolutely amazing. And she is a coach for neurodivergent people and people with EDS, which if you've spent any time on social media, you now are starting to see this weird connection between the two. And we don't really have much answers or research as to why yet, but so many of us are realizing there is a huge connection, but there just isn't any research yet. It's it's severely lacking. And I feel like this is probably the biggest piece for patients who are suffering with chronic pain to actually get to the bottom of things and start feeling better. Absolutely. So very well said. Uh, so much to impact, unpack in what you just said. Um, a lot. I think... Absolutely. I have also seen this very strong correlation in thinking of hypermobile people that I've spoken with and people that have Ehlers-Danlos Syndrome. It's exceedingly common. In fact, I'm struggling to think of someone that this you know doesn't apply to. Exceedingly common to be highly sensitive people, which often gets abbreviated to HSP. And there's a book written mm-hmm. on this called The Orchid and the Dandelion. And there absolutely seems to be a lot there. 
and the sensory processing angle is very interesting and seems to be a a large correlation with autism, ADHD, and complex PTSD. And, And I'm so glad that finding out about these additional facets of yourself has led to you being able to address them and treat them. And I really commend you for leaning into this challenge and wanting to learn as much as you possibly can about your body and mind and how they work together. Because a lot of these conditions are so stigmatized and the language that's used in these conduct contexts can be very painful to engage with. I'm just always constantly impressed at your your attitude and how you you can just continue to keep moving forward, learning what you can and and trying to improve yourself. It, it's incredibly impressive. And I'm so happy that you got connected with Kaylin because she has, I think she's just been absolutely wonderful. And I think her practice is really sorely needed in this space. Absolutely. And I think for me, being able to work with someone like her has really helped me see that the piece of my life that I have ignored the longest is really putting myself first and setting clear boundaries for what feels good to me. Being a child who grew up with disabled parents, from a young age, I was made to feel like the caregiver, like I had to be the parent, like I had to have everything under control. And if I didn't quickly jump to the occasion to help my parents with whatever they needed, I was made out to be a bad kid or a bad person because how could I not help a disabled person? And I've started to recognize in my life that as an adult now, I am so sensitive to anyone that wants something from me and feeling discomfort with it and having a really hard time saying no if it doesn't if it doesn't serve me and the level at which i become emotionally dysregulated to being made uncomfortable seems to be one of the number one contributors to my chronic pain. And I want to be very clear that when you are living with these things, the biggest trap is trying to get one answer, going down this rabbit hole to figure out, well, what do I need to do to fix this? Unfortunately, it is a very complex web of many, many different factors from our bodies being hypermobile and quite literally feeling unsafe 24-7, never having stability and constantly trying to seek that stability and support. Um, A lot of people with EDS describe never feeling like they are fully supported, even lying down. Like right now, I am supported by, uh, you know, one of these triangular back pillows that is probably the most comfortable way I can just rest for, you know, something like a phone call, but I still feel like my body isn't fully supported. Like I just feel like kind of loose in space. And another piece of that is proprioception. And when you are neurodivergent and have hypermobility, you have issues with proprioception and your body knowing where it is in space And it's just this chronic irritation and discomfort uh, that if you don't have an awareness of it, you'll never know why you never really feel good. Um, Not only that, the pressure of trying to live a normal life, work, make money, pay the bills, uh, exist in a very sensorily, sensory overload type of society where getting in the car is overwhelming, getting on the road, highways, going to doctor's appointments with the fluorescent lights in the office, mm-hmm. uh, going to the grocery store where you have chemical smells left and right. We are constantly inundated with micro stressors 
and sensory overload. And when you aren't aware of these things, you don't have any way to know how to accommodate yourself and remove some of those stressors. So that's something I've been working on is figuring out, okay, in my day-to-day, what triggers can I eliminate to reduce my trigger load and uh, increase what Kaylin likes to call autistic glimmers, which are the positive things that actually have the opposite effect that make you feel really good, like beautiful music or something really soft or uh, a beautiful natural smell like flowers, fresh air. Those things are really intense for us in a healing way. So um, I also have learned that it's not just that we are broken and we are just way too sensitive and we just need to learn to adapt to society. No, we are very sensitive to the negative, the toxic parts of society, the unnatural things that have been introduced in the past century. But also we're really sensitive to beautiful things too, like art and music. And that has what has led me to be an artist, which is an amazing thing. And that's not talked about enough. I 100% agree. So well said. I totally agree that there isn't near enough discussion of the glimmers and what a, what a beautiful way to put that. And I've for a long time suspected that it's sort of very well established that people with these conditions are very sensitive. And that mostly gets talked about in the literature as sensitivity to pain, anxiety, depression. Mm-hmm. And that's certainly part of the picture and a big part of the picture, but it seems like hypermobile people have a broader range of feeling and sensory input in general. And that includes the joy and the excitement and these positive things too. And so the discussion seems very unbalanced to me at the moment. And I think that stories like yours are critically important. And I commend you on your honesty and your openness about sharing your experience and the different facets of it, because so much of the literature is about, oh, people with these conditions are sort of implying that we're hypochondriacs and that we're just anxious all the time. And yet there's also this wealth of physical evidence that shows how we are physically constructed differently. There was the Columbia paper that was published at the end of 2022 on dermal fibroblasts, and they looked at how these skin cells looked in a control population, so people without hypermobility, and how it compared to hypermobile Ehlers-Danlos and HSD. And the HSD and HEDS were extremely similar, and the control group completely different from those two groups. I highly encourage anyone out there to go out and look at that paper, and figure one just shows in very clear terms how different the tissue is constructed And once you start to understand that piece of it, the physical differences, which are very rarely talked about when we're talking about the psychological piece, which I I think kind of gives the perception, which is clearly prevalent in the medical community, that this is a primarily psychological condition. And there are a number of threads on Reddit of doctors and providers talking openly about how they think this is just all in people's heads. This is a TikTok disorder that comes from people talking on TikTok. And it's so dismaying and distressing to me, having seen the wealth of physical evidence that explains these things. Dr. Elise Cruz was interviewed a while back, and she analogized the situations to building a house with screws made out of jelly. And I thought that was a very (laughs) interesting visual image, but it, it certainly communicates the physical differences that we live with. And Dr. Chopra has done some great advocacy talking about how, and I'm paraphrasing a bit here, but he did a great interview in Chronic pain partners with Karina Sturm talking about how if your joints are popping out of place, yeah, that's not going to make you feel the most emotionally and physically stable, but that doesn't mean you have, it's just not inherently disordered. It actually makes sense given what our physical state is. And so I think stories like yours are incredibly compelling to kind of help bridge that gap between old stereotypes or incomplete information, you know, just focusing on the negative side of the mind's experience and what is becoming more and more clear by the day about the physical implications of all this. So I don't know if if you can relate to this, but for me, it's 
that combination of the physical discomfort and the emotional distress of not being validated that are kind of that killer combo. It's not just one and it's not just the other. It's the fact that we have been suffering with a physical condition that is very physically debilitating, but at the same time have emotionally not gotten the support we needed. So in my case, from starting at eight years old, I experienced severe pain in my low back with any sort of uh, high impact activity or static activity. So standing for more than like five to 10 minutes at a time, uh, running any, any type of high impact sport was always really painful for me. And not, no one was ever able to give me an explanation as to why that was. So not only was I dealing with this physical pain, which was very, you know, musculoskeletal, completely related to my hypermobility and the instability in my joints and in my ligaments, paired with the emotional trauma of trying to explain this to any doctor and being seen as if I was crazy. And this is the story of pretty much anyone with EDS because we know that it predominantly affects women, 90% of cases. HEDS in particular is not thought to be as common as one in 500 people. So that is a lot of young females who are experiencing a lot of physical pain and trying to make sense of this and explain this when they go to medical professionals and being met with blank stares, being told that it's psychosomatic, that it's just anxiety, and then even being medicated at a young age. So we spend our whole life going to all these doctors and are just met with blank stares, being told that it's psychosomatic or just being dismissed in general because they don't even have the guts to say that. And I know in my case, I have, since I was a kid, lived with that frustrating experience of knowing that there's something wrong and just never being validated. So of course, we are suffering from uh, things like anxiety and depression because we spend our entire lives being dismissed and gaslit. So I think one of the worst things about living with an invisible illness like EDS is you are constantly trying to make sense of why you don't feel okay. And doctors are actually creating more problems that are totally unnecessary. And we end up developing things like anxiety as a result of the lack of education and awareness. Absolutely. I think it's been something that's been very difficult for the medical profession to come to terms with. And I see the resistance, like when the CNN article was published, I think it was on December 24th of last year, those Reddit threads, there were a lot of people very resentful about the idea of providers being a part of what's now referred to as medical gaslighting. And mm -hmm. I can understand it to some degree that they just that this is coming from a place of ignorance that they're not aware of the physical evidence like the Columbia study, you know, Dr. Petra Klinga has done research on how the spinal dura moves, you know, that just hasn't made it out there. And it just really makes me think like, we really need good advocates and good advocacy organizations to be putting out an accurate depiction of what these conditions are. And I think that would just make such a big difference. You know, I think there are some great organizations, Chronic Pain Partners does great work, Hype Access, there's the HMSA in the UK. But there are unique challenges in the US where we are it comes to insurance coverage and things like that. And so I think we really need good advocacy. I look to organizations like the Leukemia and the Lymphoma Society. My own family had a personal experience uh, with a family member who had leukemia, and they had a lot of support. I was just checking out their website the other day, really impressed with the level of support and advocacy they have. I really wish that we could have something like that for, 
for Ehlers Danlos to be partnering with doctors so they don't feel like they're being accused of doing something wrong and we can just kind of find a way to to move forward. But I completely agree with you that it's kind of a, a constellation of factors that come together that lead to absolutely immense suffering in this community. I'm glad you highlighted the paper that found the one, eight, one in 500 diagnosed prevalence in Wales. Yeah. And we know that it's, you know, virtually everyone, I think, acknowledges at least that it's underdiagnosed. But we're also pretty aware that the US has very high rates of chronic conditions. And so I would not be surprised at all if that number was actually the prevalence much higher, especially given the sheer number of people that I've interacted with that have this condition. I'm often struck by the immense similarity in our stories. I hear the same stories almost verbatim time and time again. And sometimes I feel like it's myself speaking back to me because it's, it's such parallels of things that I've experienced. But yeah, getting a true understanding of the nature of this condition, its physical origins and how those can impact the mind and manifest in the mind seems critically important to be able to get this condition recognized with the respect that it and the people who live with it deserve. Yeah, I think a good place to start would be trying to find a way to have doctors be able to understand the basic mechanism of why patients like us are in pain. And the way I explain it to my friends and family is that I have weak connective tissue, which includes my ligaments, my tendons, my skin, uh, my organs, uh, and, and many other aspects of what make up our bodies. And because of that, my joints are more unstable than they should be. And my muscles are chronically overcompensating, trying to do a job that they weren't designed to do. And pretty much everyone that I've ever explained that to said, oh, okay, that makes sense. I can see how that makes sense and why you would have a lot of pain. And if non-medical professionals that I explain in just a minute can kind of get the gist of it, I think medical professionals should be able to catch on too. It's just the big stigma of they believe it's psychosomatic. And I think that has a lot to do with the fact that it predominantly affects women. Women are statistically more prone to be dismissed, misdiagnosed, gaslit in the medical field because oftentimes we look fine on the outside. When I go to a, a new doctor, I look young, even younger than I am for my age. I am not overweight. I seem to be able-bodied and unless I really show my difficulty with things like sitting in a chair, uh, sitting upright, they won't be able to understand what it is that I'm feeling because it is an invisible illness. And that is really, really hard. Um, it's you know similar to what people with mental illness do have to deal with and other forms of invisible disability, where if you can't obviously tell what's wrong on the outside, people are going to have a hard time understanding it. It's much easier for someone to look at someone who's blind using a cane or a guide dog or someone in a wheelchair for them to understand, okay, this person is disabled, but what would it take for those of us who look fine on the outside to be validated? Yeah, absolutely. And it's somewhat perplexing to me, given that this study came out showing how differently our dermal fibroblasts look, why there hasn't been more of a push to get widespread dermal fibroblast testing to be able to show this to providers that may be struggling to understand how someone can quote unquote, look good, but be experiencing all these symptoms, I, you know, I don't know if it's cost reasons, I, I don't know. But it seems like the more evidence of that, the physical component can get out there. And people like you telling their stories, I don't know, but it seems like that's, you know, one potential avenue forward. And 
It's interesting because Ehlers-Danlos has always been described as a genetic condition. Um, I've seen it reported that most physicians think that because it's genetic, people are diagnosed from infancy and that they're all extremely debilitated. They're almost all in wheelchairs. And in my experience, talking to hypermobile people, neither of those things are true. I've, I've never talked to one person who was diagnosed since infancy, and I think it makes sense not to do that. I've seen some people say maybe five years old, you know, but that seems very individual dependent. And to me, it seems like at a time when symptoms manifest, then look for the conditions that could be explaining that the symptoms, that seems kind of basics 101. Like for you, it sounds like that was around age eight would have been a good time for you to become aware of this if if in context with your family and your life and hopefully a doctor that knows you well thought that makes sense. But it's interesting too, because it's inherited in an autosomal dominant fashion, which suggests that it should affect women and men 50-50. But you're right, the, the vast majority of patients diagnosed with this condition are women. And there are some non- cisgender men, let's say, just people that don't fall into that category. And I think there's a lot of sort of speculation about why that may may be that seems like estrogen tends to loosen ligaments. And I've heard that testosterone and pain are inversely correlated. So the more you have of one, the less the other. Trying to think of where I read that now, but there's a lot of speculation. But that being said, there are clearly a lot of men who are impacted by this condition as well. And because this is seen as a women's condition, they're getting left out and they're not getting appropriate treatment either. So, you know, I think of ways of how to kind of present this to the medical community, which is clearly very skeptical and kind of seems very stubbornly resistant to understanding and embracing what Ehlers-Danlos is at a biological level. The more we can show that this is impacting countless people that literally runs the spectrum of every type of human identity there is gender race you know a lot of providers think i've seen this time and time again said on reddit oh this is a bunch of middle class white women with too much time on their hands and i'm like no it's not no it's not like it's humans of all different types so yeah i spent my life from you know starting around 13 14 pushing through the pain to reach success in my career. And I had a very successful career as a photographer. I started my business when I was just 17. By 18 or 19, I was in an entrepreneurship program at Florida State University uh, and was able to start my wedding photography business in that program. And because of that, I ended up being able to make six figures in my 20s. And all the while, I was invisibly suffering with major health issues and feeling very defeated and debilitated. But I, at the time, didn't have any way to accommodate myself other than managing pain with, you know, frequent massage, heat, ice, ibuprofen, you know, the basic tools that I had at the time. Not having a POTS diagnosis as well until last year made things so much harder for me because I have seen a huge improvement in how I feel when I supplement with electrolytes and sodium daily. And I never knew why things that were dehydrating or things that expanded my blood vessels, like being in the heat, exercising in the heat caused me so much suffering. Growing up, you know, I would ride horses in the Florida sun, in the heat, in the summertime. And I, every single time would get off the horse and be about to pass out. And I constantly thought, what is wrong with me that I can't seem to tolerate the heat like all the other people I ride with? I don't see anyone else feeling as bad as I did. So I just suppressed it because I thought, well, there must be something wrong with me. It must have something to do with I'm just not as physically fit as they are. And it's so sad to look back and think of that little girl who kind of beat herself up for something that was completely out of my control and also could have been helped. 
now that I know how to accommodate myself with these things, I can take the right steps to prevent things like, you know, intense heart palpitations, dizziness, lightheadedness. And that has been a huge game changer in my life. And it's really interesting when I think about my life because I have always been exposed to disability. I literally was raised by disabled parents, but I never once would have considered myself to be disabled, even though I had all the reason to. I just didn't have that awareness that disability is not, you know, a bad word and that it actually is an amazing way to allow you to live a full life. So now I have learned that by accepting the word disabled, I can use that to my benefit to accommodate myself and be able to enjoy my life to the fullest. And for me, that looks like being an ambulatory wheelchair user. I, for most of my days, don't need a mobility aid. I can walk on my own. I am able to do light exercise, but it's times when I have to stand for long periods or I'm going to be walking a long distance, like anything over a mile. I no longer choose to suffer and I choose, hey, I now have a tool that can help me do this thing without unnecessary suffering. Absolutely. Thank you so much for sharing that part of your story. I think it's so important and I think it's resonant for so many people out there. And it brings to mind a few thoughts immediately. I was thinking of an article I read quite a while back years ago now where the headline was something like wheelchair bound boy wins. I think it was like a Lego building competition. And this child resented being called wheelchair bound and was saying, I'm not bound to my wheelchair. My wheelchair liberates me and allows me to be able to interact with the world. So it's this idea of people who are able to kind of posing, you know, imposing these ideas and mindsets onto disabled people. And that's why I think it's so important for disabled people to speak for themselves and to be able to tell their stories openly, unfiltered and what works for them. And it's really unfortunate that the concept of disability is so stigmatized because every human being, as I say all the time, is a complex set of skills and interests and abilities coupled with challenges and limitations. And our challenge in life is to figure out how to make those two fit together as best as possible and being able to recognize the nature of our limitations and the tools that are out there to help us with those things is is really, really key. And again, I just think it's wonderful the attitude that you've approached this with. And your story is so consistent with what I hear time and time again, and with this quote from Dr. Rodney Graham, which I'll read in a moment. It's in The Rheumatologist. I think we'll, we'll stick a link into the episode notes for this. But he said in talking about people with joint hypermobility syndrome, which was renamed to hypermobility spectrum disorder. Again, that word disorder in this context is perplexing to say the least. But talking about joint hypermobility syndrome, he said, quote, they are often young people, highly motivated and high achievers who have been cut down in their prime. And often they're mm -hmm. told because doctors don't understand what's going on, that they're imagining their pain or that it's all in their minds. This is a terrible indictment of how we handle these patients. And I think that speaks to your experience. It's, it speaks to my own, so many that I've spoken to. And it's incredibly tragic, but I think hypermobile people and people with these different conditions we've been talking about, autism, ADHD, we have a lot to offer the world if we could get a little bit more of an inch of understanding and acceptance of what we're going through. And some of the most difficult part to navigate can be other people's reactions or almost horror at seeing things like mobility aids or just hearing the story of what Ehlers-Danlos is. And so Oh, I, I thank you so much for sharing that story. And it, it's validating that so many of us experience this, but it's also, it's very heartbreaking that so many of us have had to suffer unnecessarily um, due to the way our condition is currently perceived by much of the world and many of the people who are in a position to be treating us. Yeah, man, I, I resonate with that quote so much because I spent about 12 years of my life 
very overstretched in my photography career and constantly pushing past what my body was telling me it was able to do because I didn't have answers. And what that looked like for me is I ended up eventually getting opportunities to travel for work. And I was working for a production company doing commercial photography for companies like airlines and cruise lines and tourism boards. And uh, I also spent many years doing destination wedding photography. So I would be getting on a plane multiple times a month, many months, back to back and traveling abroad. And for me, plane travel is the probably the worst thing for a flare-up for me because it's the combination of the neurodivergence and the stress I have when a trip is coming up and the anxiety I have towards planning that trip, anticipating it, making sure that I'm on time, being nervous about my routine being disrupted. I know that when I travel, I'm going to have a bunch of gastrointestinal issues because I'm not eating as healthy. I am not eating my safe foods. I'm not eating at regular times. I know that going through the airport is going to be really overwhelming, that I'm going to be in a lot of pain being in a very confined small space for many hours. And all of those things combined are really, really uh, harmful to both my physical and mental health. But I just push through those things because how could I turn down these opportunities of being able to travel the world and getting paid a lot of money to do it? And what that led me to eventually was burnout. And I hit burnout in May of 2022 after one of the last destination weddings that I ever photographed where after my plane trip, I was in like 11 out of 10 pain. And the very next day I had to go photograph a nine hour wedding. Uh, And that to me just did something to my brain and my body. And I've just never been the same. And I have heard this in other EDS patients and neurodivergent people that around age 28, 29, 30, it's very common to hit burnout because we spend so much of our life just suppressing and ignoring our physical and emotional needs that eventually, you know, something's got to give. And because of that, I haven't been able to work for over a year now. So now I'm kind of in this process of allowing my body to heal and to rest from the trauma of burnout, but now trying to figure out how can I work in society in a job that is going to be able to accommodate the long list of support needs that I have. It's really, really challenging. Absolutely. And you're so right. I've heard that too about that 28, 29, 30 does appear to be kind of a key phase for a lot of people. And, you know, hypermobility often gets talked about as having three phases, the hypermobility phase in youth, then the pain phase, and then the stiffness phase. Just in looking back on at my own life and hearing from the experiences of others and reading, I really wonder if there was earlier and better education about hypermobility, if that pain phase could be pushed out further, if that stiffness phase could be pushed out further or avoided altogether. I don't know. But it seems like it's concerning feeling like the research is going in a direction of making it more and more difficult for people to get the diagnosis that's appropriate for them, and then to be able to find the, you know, the answers and treatments. So any aspiring researchers out there, you know, who are looking to uh, <laughs> dig into this, I'm highly encouraged when I see hypermobile people themselves are getting into more of the scientific research, because I think the voice of hypermobile people has not always been included to the extent that one would hope. But yeah, I think in the meantime, like sharing stories like this and experiences like this is is incredibly powerful and I really commend you for all that you do. Before we before we pause this session, we'll we'll definitely have you back to talk further about your your experiences. Do you have any tips or 
things that have really helped you to feel better or anything that you'd like to share with the audience? So I definitely feel like since my diagnosis, I have learned a few things that have been an absolute game changer in terms of how I feel. And just to give an example, I used to have flare-ups very frequently, you know, weekly, multiple times a week. And when I say flare-ups, I mean pain getting to level eight, nine, even 10 at times where it's so debilitating that you literally can't do anything. And I'm happy to say that because of these tools that I've implemented, I now rarely experience flare-ups. I still experience chronic pain 24-7 daily. There's pretty much never a time that I'm not in pain. But to be able to make that progress from uh, not experiencing the extreme pain is a huge win for me. And one of those things has been taking the advice of one of my past coaches, Taylor Goldberg, who uh, is a hypermobility coach. I know she's also been on the podcast. Um, She was the first person to teach me to change positions every 20 minutes. And I think that I've learned that I get into trouble when I don't follow that rule. And it happens a lot when either I'm on my phone, I'm on my computer, and I'm trying to focus or I just am kind of scrolling or get in the zone with something. Or I'm in a place where I'm forcing myself to sit still and kind of like not disturb people or look normal. And this happens a lot when I go to doctors and I'm sitting in the waiting room or sitting in the office or pretty much any time I have to sit or wait in line for an extended period of time. So I'm learning to just get over that and move, do what my body needs and listen to my body when it's telling me, hey, like I can't hold this position anymore. Um, The other big thing has been from the neurodivergent side, really listening to when I feel emotionally uncomfortable. And this has been a really hard one for me because I'm definitely a people pleaser, but I have been learning with Kaylin that what's most important for me and feeling good is constantly asking myself, how could I be more comfortable right now? And I do those little check-ins throughout the day where, you know, I'll be sitting down working on something and I ask myself, how can Donna be more comfortable right now? And it could be one small thing like changing positions, getting up, moving my body for a little bit, uh, drinking water, grabbing a soft blanket, anything that can kind of soothe my nervous system and give my body that break from holding still. It has been absolutely life-changing for me. Wonderful. I'm so glad to hear that those things have been helpful. Yeah, it's it's unfortunate that things like having to switch positions get so much side eye from people that don't understand. Um, because yeah. it's like, we don't want to have to be changing positions all the time either. It's very, it's, uh, it, uh, but it makes life, it, you know, it's our challenge. Um, I think just the way you've, you know, met these challenges head on is incredibly inspiring to me. So uh, I thank you so much for sharing your story here today. Um, we'll definitely have to have you back to talk in more depth because I think you're, you're just such a, a great source of advocacy. You have such an important story and, and such a, a wonderful voice in talking on these issues. Yeah, I thank you so much. And we'll include links to your social media pages if people want to, you know, check out what you're saying and doing online. Any parting thoughts you want to leave our audience with before we, um, I guess, pause this conversation for now? Um, I just wanted to say thank you, Carrie, for all that you do, because you have been the number one friend that I've made in this community. And I am just thankful to have met you and that you have been so open and genuine with me. And I think what you're doing is amazing and the way that you're helping people through this podcast. So thank you. And if anyone wants to follow me, my handle is at chronic and capable on Instagram and TikTok. 
thank you so much. Uh, and right back at you. I've really appreciated connecting with you. And yeah, I consider you a great friend. Always enjoy talking to you. And yeah, if anyone else out there is interested in reaching out, we're always available at hypermobilityhappyhour at gmail.com. Well, that concludes this episode. Thanks for listening. And we'll see you next time. Bye.